Welcome. Good morning, everyone. This is a very special uh, 40th Set the Month in Motion podcast and forum, which is produced by Fremantle Chamber in partnership with City of Fremantle's Building Business Capacity Program. My name is Andrew Althwaite. I'm from Four Blue, uh, a member of the Marine and Engineering Committee here at the Fremantle Chamber. And taking, in, I think, the, the very big shoes, very uh, well-worn shoes of Denisha Quinlan. So please be a little bit kind, uh, <laughs> expect something a little bit different from what Denisha has done in the past, uh, but very excited to be here hosting what is a super interesting topic at the start of 2023. It feels like we're in the future, so we're going to talk about the future of all these technologies, XR, AR, VR, AI, ML, blockchain, crypto. Um, this is where you're going to learn all about those fascinating topics from people who truly are um, global experts. Before we dive into that though, I'd like to acknowledge um, the special country we are live streaming from today and the traditional owners of this Budja on this land in which we gather, acknowledging the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation and paying respects to elders past, present and emerging. I want to acknowledge their ongoing connection, stewardship and uh, spiritual connection to both this land and the sea and the waters that surround us. And my special word for today is mamung, uh, so the word for whale. Just yesterday, um, speaking to someone who is making a new feature length film um, about whales uh, and this area, many of the creative talent coming out of Fremantle and there's explicitly about that connection of traditional owners and sea country. So some really exciting ways in which our connection to country and sea and land is being um, you know, actively curated. So let's dive from you know, 60,000 years of history and connection um, into the future. I'm gonna kick off by introducing our guests and giving them an opportunity to share a little bit about what they're working on. So first of all, please welcome uh, Minnie Reynolds, the uh, fabulous real estate sales executive, lecturer in blockchain, with a background in accounting and business management, um, who first heard about and got into Bitcoin in 2013, is now a lecturer and director of TechStack, where she runs professional development training that gives people professional development points for Rewa on blockchain and tokenization of assets. You've also tokenized your own property up in Geraldton, um, which is where we know each other from. We, right. won't, we won't say how long ago. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, welcome Minnie. Can you tell us a bit more about tokenization, blockchain and real estate? Yeah, sure, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you for, for doing this today. Um, so tokenization is one of the subjects that we cover quite heavily for our real estate courses. We're trying to uh, arm our real estate agents with enough knowledge to see what's happening in our space and to be ready for when tokenization becomes something that everybody has to deal with. Uh, we have a lot of partners within TechStack and we work with BlockSquare and OceanPoint as well who uh, allow us to have the platform and the marketplace for these assets that we tokenize. So as you said, I have one of quite a few now in WA that have tokenized our properties. And so it's quite easy to do, I'm going to say, even though crypto is not easy generally. Um, but it's a step-by-step -step process and putting your property onto a marketplace and tokenizing it means that then essentially what you can do is um, tokenize the economic rights of that property in Australia. That's how we do it. So it's like a smart legal contract that sits on a, an Ethereum platform. Then it allows that person to say sell 100,000 tokens of their property they're not touching the title. The title sits there clean and clear, so you're not looking at stamp duty or anything like that. And that if that property can be commercial, it can be residential, it can be Airbnbs, it can be any number of hard assets, uh, then those tokens go onto a marketplace and they can be sold. So what happens with those tokens in, in that sense then is that the owner of the property is raising equity or money in their property that they can use for... Uh, renovations, um, growth, 
going on a holiday, whatever they like, really, paying off debt, which is, is typically what a lot of people do. And for, in exchange for that, the, the token holder then gets a, a stream of income. The really great thing about doing it this way is that not only the stamp duty is not there, but also small players can buy pieces of property. So we see this being expanded into lots of different areas, even social housing, where perhaps we could say rent buys or um, social housing where people could actually be paying their rent every week and obtaining a small piece of that property every week they pay their rent. Mm. We know that ownership creates pride, creates a sense of place and space and community. So we can see this sort of spreading out in the much broader sense as well. But yes, I think tokenization, I mean, assets, real estate assets is a, a massive part of our economy and it's illiquid, whereas this then will make it liquid to a point. Mm -hmm. So that's a little brief. Yeah, awesome. And so there is, we'll talk more about the underlying technology a little bit, but um, some people may not be familiar with what tokenization is, but it's essentially fractionalization of something that was a whole asset, uh, much like listing something in the stock market. It was one company with perhaps one owner, but now suddenly that ownership can be, um, it's broken up into many parts, which provides opportunities for you know, owners of a big single asset to divest from some of it and share some of it, but also means if you don't have any assets, you can buy part of it, even if you can afford the whole thing. So that's essentially, the same dynamic. Yeah, it is essentially that, although we, we don't touch the title. Okay. Because as soon as we touch ownership, then we're actually in that space of stamp duties and, you know, having a, a one property that has 100,000 owners, mm. you can imagine, but one property that is tokenized with 100,000, almost like unit holders, mm. um, is a different thing and easier to manage. So, yeah, but essentially, yeah. Mm. And so apart from it being... Um, this being uh, new and perhaps there are some little hurdles in terms of understanding the language and platforms you use. Are there other challenges or barriers that would prevent more and more people doing this? Are there any risks? I think what we're looking at is having really um, liquid marketplaces. That's where I think we need to start really focusing on because obviously something's liquid if you can sell your your token if the exchange yep. is happening on that on that platform so currently um the platform is quite busy but it's not it ha we haven't really got that big network effect at the moment which will mean that it's very easy to change but it's growing and it's it's early in the space as much of our projects are yeah. so yeah well on the topic of markets and liquidity i might use this as an opportunity to introduce um anya so Anya is a crypto economist at Power Ledger, which is sort of born in Fremantle with its initial project, but one of Australia's most exciting and respected blockchain companies. Um, globally, um, very um, a great reputation, especially on the back of its very successful initial coin offering. Um, Anya has uh, been with Power Ledger from those very, very early days and has spoken around the world um, at various tech conferences, including Consensus in New York, Event Horizon in Berlin, and the World Energy Congress in um, Abu Dhabi. So please welcome Anya to tell us more about the, yeah, the liquidity, the markets, the economy of crypto. Uh, thanks, Andrew. Um, well, I suppose I, I wanted to touch on something you were discussing just now before we jump into the energy space, but what you've described in terms of having a single ownership that's then you know, being made available to multiple people. That's actually, I think of that as fractionalization, not tokenization. Mm -hmm. And tokenization is specifically representing that ownership on the public ledger, which then enables you to automate certain uh, payments. So fractionalization is actually not that different to like a concept of strata properties. So where multiple people own a piece of a property and uh, tokenization, uh, I think it's super exciting, first of all. I think there is huge potential in tokenization of real estate. I think everything in the world will be represented on public ledger eventually. But, but I think some of the challenges that are in the space now is that, well, the beauty is that you, don't, you, you can trust the smart contract that distributes, for example, rent payments. So you ideally have a tenant who's also making the payments into the smart contract and then every owner automatically gets paid 
Um, so you don't need to audit, you don't need to um, necessarily um, sort of spend a lot of, I, I think the whole strata industry potentially will go away with, with the fractionalization and tokenization. And I think another challenge is, and the only reason I'm kind of jumping in, I'm not saying challenges are bad, but it's something that we've come across is that uh, some of the industries view that as establishing a financial product. So there is some heavy regulation about that. And I think there is heavy regulation because uh, traditionally there's been maybe some fraud or some payments that haven't been uh, properly made. And that that's the, the public ledger, the blockchain technology and the automation of those payments that will eventually prove to the uh, reg regulators, hopefully, that they can trust the blockchain technology better. So that's a bit of a aside on the sort of my response to what I thought you were saying was really interesting. And um, yeah, as you mentioned with PowerLedger, it's really all about helping the world transition to um, renewable energy. And in, in the initial idea of PowerLedger, which maybe a few people here know about, is that individuals install solar panels, and then they have excess energy, and then there is not really a marketplace for that excess energy. You can only sell it back to your retailer. And it was about uh, um, creating a marketplace where people can uh, do financial trades with other individuals and get paid for the excess energy. More recently, um, we've identified another opportunity, which is in tokenizing carbon credits and renewable energy certificates. So uh, there is a, a product that PowerLedger has um, launched called TraceX, and that product is doing quite well. Um, pr the primary market for it is United States, because that's where the biggest market for carbon credits and renewable energy certificates is. Uh, and, and my role has been, I, I've had many hats from, as you mentioned, started off doing crypto economics, and, um, which is basically defining what the different tokens in our system do. And then I've worked in business development and capital markets and started investing in um, crypto in 2017. And right now I work with blockchain developers, so more specifically on the technology side of things. So can you share, um, I think our audience is quite diverse. Um, Fremantle has a really diverse economy from um, yeah, real estate, shipping, fishing, creative industries. And when you talk about um, crypto economics, um, tokenization, putting things on the ledger, are there, um, are there some examples of what the implications might be for, yeah, for, one, for someone in one of those industries? Well, supply chain is the obvious use case. Um, so, uh, but I mean, you know, people like to focus on the, well, the how can real industries actually take advantage of blockchain and mm. crypto. But I think we should not forget that the primary sort of um, idea of blockchain and crypto, which was really about decentralized money that cannot be censored. So that use case, even if all the other use cases fell away, I think is still extremely powerful and extremely strong, especially in you know, a, a political climate where certain, whether it could be inflation, money printing, or it could be censorship of um, transfer of funds across borders. Um, but, but if you wanted, I suppose, to tie it back to Fremantle, I would say supply chain, um, energy, these would be two mm. obvious ones. So in, so in, the, in the marine industry, I'm aware of like say three three applications um, that, you know, companies were working with that are sort of innovative technology. So one is about um, actually bunkering and transferring fuel on and off of vessels um, and using, yeah, using blockchain to track that. Another is in um, pairing carbon and kelp regeneration credits. So, you know, rather than, you know, even as an individual, I can buy, um, buy credits that are attached to like a particular location and so there's that transparency and also in sustainable fisheries so that you can see you know where was this fish caught etc and it's it's not um censored or um sort of um it can't be tweaked and messed with by the company to their advantage it is sort of on the ledger and completely transparent which i think is this really fundamental thing whether it's currency or use is that there is a a system and contracts that almost operate like yeah independently of human interference which is what makes them so trustworthy is that the right way to say it um 
somewhat. Um, well, I suppose the challenge of using blockchain for um, any industry is that blockchain is really just a ledger. It's a database. It's a highly secure, decentralized database where if you take out one node, you still have a copy of that record on all the other nodes. So I run a node for the PowerLedger blockchain, for example, and if my node went down, we'd still have the record of energy transactions on everyone else's node. But because it's just a database, it's a tool, it's garbage in, garbage out. So if you, you know, if in the individuals in that industry are putting erroneous data on the blockchain, blockchain is just going to keep that erroneous data secure. It's not going to magically provide, yep. uh, you know, a, a verification of the data. Um, but I, I guess the way to think about it is if we were all playing, I don't know, Monopoly or poker, I don't play a lot of board games, but each individual person was, was keeping a, a, a track of the points, then this is really the nature of blockchain. We would all eventually come to a consensus, let's say that you know four of us had a certain number of points that we all got and you had a different, well, we know that we are the right, you know, we have the correct figures. Uh, so that's the, the biggest value of that technology. Awesome. I might use this as an opportunity to, um, to welcome Justin Strasky. Uh, so Justin is the co-founder and director of Human, uh, a leader in technology um, in essentially, I'm going to say it, decentralizing data science talent. <laughs> I'm just going to make, make that up based on my understanding so that you can, so that you can correct me. Um, but you have a background in helping um, more than 30 companies um, worth between five and five billion dollars achieve millions of dollars worth of efficiency, um, sustainability and innovation gains. Um, can you tell us a bit more about human AI and your model? Sure, thank you. Well, I love that um, idea of decentralized talent. I guess my career really has been about uh, building communities of people with technical skills and figuring out how they can help us solve our most important challenges. And in human AI, what we do is um, we're trying to give power and um, opportunity to thousands of AI creators around the world and help them use their skills and talents to solve problems. And we do that primarily for large industrial businesses. Um, for example, mining is a, a huge component of the Australian economy. And our community has helped mining companies to become more efficient and sustainable through applying their technology to make industrial processes more efficient. So if you want to predict when something is going to fail or you want to optimize a particular process, you might use artificial intelligence to do that. I suppose that's a, a good opportunity to define artificial intelligence. If I could leave people with one thing about artificial intelligence is that there's absolutely nothing artificial about it. Uh, I say that because it is a series of technologies, a bunch of different technologies um, that really are mimicking our innate capabilities as humans. And so I'm really interested in the potential of that technology to elevate us, uh, to take what we're good at and make us even better at that. And if you think about what we do as humans with our intelligence, one of the core things that we do is we see patterns. We try and find patterns in things and then we predict based on those patterns what's likely to happen. That sometimes gets us into trouble when we make the wrong predictions, such as what your partner might do, given uh, a history of doing that, things like that. But um, it can be very, very powerful in helping us to predict things in the physical world and take action on that basis. And so humans are great at looking at data, synthesizing that data, and making predictions about the future. If you think about your ability to catch a ball, for example, you're doing that incredibly quickly and we can learn as children how to catch uh, a ball um, and actually that's one of the harder things for us to teach a computer or a robot to do but there are other things that we can teach computers and robots to do on the basis of making predictions on the back of data uh, that help us in our in our jobs and in our daily lives and remove from us the need to do things that are dirty and dangerous and so that's where we see incredible potential for AI and technologies like machine learning to, to help us improve the world. Mm. So that sounds so good. I'm like, oh, so what's an example? <laughs> like, so good. Like such a, this is a, you know, such a human way to introduce, yeah, something that often we sort of hold as a distance or fear. Um, but yeah, you have examples of how it has been used to improve you know, outcomes for humans by, um, you know, reducing risks in industrial processes or, you know, 
um, predicting the likelihood of things going wrong. Can you tell us a bit more about, you know, how that really works? Like, where does the data come from? What do the data scientists do? What does the company do with what the data scientists produce? Can you walk us through like perhaps one example? Sure. So I think something that's very relevant to all of us right now is we've got light and uh, electrons moving into the computers and into the camera to make all of this possible. And that's really absolutely critical to us enjoying modern life. We don't want to go back to living in the dark after the sun goes down. Um, and there are a whole number of processes that are required to make that happen. Um, for example, there are large industrial circuit breakers that use a gas called SF6. And SF6 happens to be 23,000 times more potent at producing a greenhouse effect than CO2. So very, very harmful, sticks around in the atmosphere for a very long time. But we currently have used that to make electricity possible. Um, and we are uh, very cautious about emitting that gas because of its harmful effects. And you might think, well, how do we prevent these large industrial circuit breakers from leaking because that's something that they're prone to do uh, as they as they age uh, and we've been fortunate to be involved in a project with western power where we were able to predict the leakage of sf6 gas in circuit breakers days uh, and often many days in advance so that's very powerful because it means you can intervene and fix that circuit breaker before the gas leaks uh, and the way that works is Western Power have some sensors, and those sensors are a bit of hardware that sit on top of the circuit breaker, and they're measuring things about the circuit breaker, so temperature, for example, or humidity. Uh, and that creates a data stream, just information about um, what's going on with the circuit breaker and its surrounding environment. We provide that data to our community of thousands of AI creators, data scientists around the world, and they all have a great time competing to see who can build the best solution for predicting when that circuit breaker is likely to leak. And so when I talk about creating communities, one of the things that we think about is how do we make this super fun? And how do we get the power of that distributed network of talent engaged in solving this problem? And so what we see is as people submit uh, their machine learning algorithm in real time, they get feedback and they see how their peers are doing and they start to compete and they learn from each other and the net effect is that creates a much better solution than doing this uh, individually in sequence we get to iterate through hundreds of different approaches to solving that problem and the result for western power is high confidence that they've built a solution that can mm. be used in advance to understand when the circuit breaker is likely to go bang and to send somebody out to fix that that's much much better than a previous process, which is scheduled maintenance, which means mm. we've got to do that in advance of that thing breaking. We don't know when that is, so we better intervene early. We get a schedule. There's lots of wastage in, in, a, in an approach like that. Uh, and so now we can save the time of people doing things like driving cars out to remote sites to maintain circuit breakers that might not need maintenance until we're sure that they do. Mm. <laughs> Um, so you receive all these algorithms from participants, and then how does Western Power uh, know if those algorithms are any good? Yeah, excellent question. So in an engagement like that, we actually, our team, builds what's called a scoring algorithm. So it's an algorithm that assesses other algorithms. Um, we what kind of know... An algorithm? Just so we... <laughs> an algorithm is just a series of steps that you might do, right? Yeah. You might have an algorithm for washing dishes that, yeah. that starts with, I don't know, scrape off the food, turn on the water, wipe mm. the plate, put it in the dishwasher. It's a series of steps. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about algorithms in data science, we're talking about automating those algorithms by having computers do them so we don't have to. Mm -hmm. uh, and these algorithms can be pretty sophisticated. In some cases, our data scientists in our community are pulling them off the shelf. Somebody did one earlier and happened to make it available to people, mm. and they're tuning them like a toolkit, or mm -hmm. they're, they're improving them. They might be coming up with new ones. Uh, and on to answer your question, we build one which knows something about what accuracy should be. So we build a baseline model, and that baseline model tells us uh, that we should have the confidence to be able to do better than chance at predicting the failure in this case of circuit breakers. And our model uh, assesses the incoming models for things like accuracy, precision, recall, all of which are technical terms that help us understand the ability of that model to do its job. 
and also things like how much computing resources is this going to take because we might want to install it out at a remote site on a mm. very small computer. Um, but we're able to verify and validate the performance of the models that are submitted by our community in real time, which allows us to give them a score, which allows them to do better and compete with each other. Uh, so there is some work to be done in figuring out what should that scoring algorithm look like and how do we make sure that, um, uh, that, that we're providing meaningful scoring to both participants and Western power. It is the case with uh, that particular type of, of engagement that we know what good looks like. And so we're iterating always towards, um, you can imagine it like higher accuracy, right? We can, mm -hmm. we can tell how many events in our uh, hidden data set are these algorithms predicting. So what you do is you, you can give people a certain amount of data to train their algorithms, their models on, and you hide behind your back um, another data set, which is the scoring data set. Because it doesn't matter if they're very good at predicting what's in the training data set. Everybody should be able to do that. That's how you train a model. That's how we train. We, we look at data in the world. We're trying to predict the next thing that's going to happen. Right? We just happen to have the next thing that's going to happen hidden behind our back. So we call that a holdout data set. And that allows us to uh, verifiably assess the incoming models from cool. our community. Amazing. Sounds like a whole new world. And uh, on, on that topic, you know, there's a lot of a lot of really fun things there, like the gamification, the competition, creating community, and in a way doing that, you know, using human resources um, from around the world very, very efficiently to solve like a highly localized problem or challenge, um, which sounds a little bit like my understanding of some of the potential of VR and AR is to, um, in terms of how we use it in the world, is to um, create virtual environments and places where we can both be more creative, um, grow communities and connections, but also solve problems. Now, am I way off track or can you tell us more and correct me? So this is, uh, I'm handing over to Natalie Mourinho um, of diverse background, diverse experience, um, but widely acknowledged as really an expert in AR, VR um, and XR, chair of Immerse Australia, um, a ScreenWest Advisory Committee Group member and Design Frio Committee member who I think has experience in applying um, these new technologies across local government, um, in business, in creative industries, in Frio and around the world. So uh, hopefully the right person to ask about what is AR, VR and what does that mean for us? Yeah, so, wow, where to begin? Um, if uh, The term that we use a lot in the industry at the moment is extended realities or XR and really it's a spectrum of technologies um, that span virtual or digital spaces. So if you think of a spectrum, so on one side here we are in real reality where we can see each other and interact in a real physical environment. Um, the next step is augmented reality. So Pokemon Go is a really um, familiar example for everybody where you're overlaying through the use of um, your mobile phone um, virtual or digital items that aren't necessarily here in the room with us. And then if you dial it up, um, you've got virtual reality. So that's when people put on um, typically headsets, um, like a, an Oculus headset, and you're immersed in a 100% virtual digital environment. So nothing's real. Um, the people, although the people you interact with, you know, are real as well. Um, the metaverse is a term that's been used a lot and I have to bring it up um, because it's um, obviously Facebook slash meta have, um, have coined that term, but it's actually um, been around for a long time. It was um, coined by a science fiction writer in the 90s in a book called Snow Crash, um, and it talks a lot about cyberspace. Um, but the way that I like to describe the metaverse and extended reality technologies is that we're, we are human beings. Um, we're used to um, interacting with each other and the world around us in a 3D environment. And so the metaverse is basically an online environment where we can interact with data and information and each other, but in a, in a 3D kind of space. Um, and a lot of people ask, you know, um, this is such a new thing, it sounds crazy, but actually we've been digitizing our lives since, you know, the advent of computing. You know, we don't have 
heaps of paperwork in the office anymore. It's all digital. You know, we use documents um, and we file them on Teams now. And obviously with the advent of COVID, there was this rapid shift towards remote working and everybody suddenly had to get used to interacting via Teams and, and Zoom and things like that. Um, but the, the next step um, will be taking everything that we understand as computing today um, and transforming it into spatial computing. So that idea of a 3D world. And this is something that's been really propelled a lot by the gaming industry. Um, and so game engines like Unreal and Unity um, are really, that's what's being used to create AAA games um, that everyone, you know, plays online. Um, but it's actually being used a lot in industry at the moment. Um, and by many, um, you know, resources companies in, here in WA as well for um, creating digital twins and simulations and environments. And um, this is where there's incredibly a lot of, <coughs> excuse me, crossover with the world of blockchain and machine learning. Um, and there's a, just a lot of exciting um, convergence with um, with that technology. Um, for my company, Voyant Augmented Reality, which is based here in Fremantle, uh, we focus on creative industries and social impact. So for me, with a background in user experience and human computer interaction, I'm very excited about the potential um, for just everyday people to interact with information in a way that's really just more intuitive. Like, you know, we've been using the mouse and keyboard for <laughs> decades and only, you know, in the last sort of 10, 15 years transition to a tap screen. But when we can actually physically um, interact with information around us, I think that'll be incredibly exciting. Um, and something that uh, you touched on a bit earlier or maybe mentioned before the panel started about how this technology could potentially, you know, help the world. Mm and address like really big issues like climate change. Um, if you think about things like um, fast fashion or fast furniture or all these um, industries that use up a lot of commodities and resources, if we're moving towards a digital space, all that becomes virtual. So there's a lot happening, for example, in the fashion industry where um, high-end brands like Balenciaga are creating um, virtual fashion items to be used and sold online that people can use. Um, and in the future, when you've got augmented reality and everyone's wearing glasses that allows you to see everyone, you know, everyone could be wearing black, which is my, uh, you know, normal <laughs> dress every day, but you could overlay, you know, this avatar, a virtual avatar of what you wanted to dress and what you wanted to look like that day. Um, or even in the gaming world, you know, don't dress up, become a dinosaur for the day, you know, or dress up as your favorite, you know, um, video game character. So, but you could just imagine like the amount of savings from not having to produce cotton and, mm. you know, um, um, chemical synthetic fabrics, you know, that just get disposed in landfill. So, yeah. It's also, so it's quite a, um, yeah, many, many sort of like possible um, use cases. Um, I understand that your like one project that you're working on is to do with the museum and Sydney. Yeah, so um, for the upcoming um, World uh, Pride Festivals, um, festival uh, worldwide in February, March, uh, we're working with the Australian Museum um, to launch an Instagram filter um, with uh, that was in collaboration with a local artist called Janet Carter. And um, it's a memorial that was done originally here in Perth for the WA um, AIDS Council. And it's just a reflection of um, all the, the lives that were lost during the AIDS um, epidemic. And so that will be launched. So, yeah, it's everything from the filters that we use every day, you know, on Instagram to um, to high-end mobile applications. Um, it's not everywhere at the moment. It's not mainstream except for filters um, on, on mobile devices. But everyone's waiting for the eyeglasses to come out or the, you know, the equivalent from Apple to become fully mainstream. Um, but the other project that we're working here, I remember um, locally is we're working with the uh, Filipino Australian community as well um, on doing um, a mobile application that does some storytelling aspects about tradition and culture. So, um, and that's something that we talk about at um, Screen West. So that's traditionally um, TV and film um, and they're um, broadening their remit into games as well and um, interactive and immersive technologies. Mm. So it really, um, it creates a whole lot of opportunities to um, share ideas, share designs, um, investigate remote sites. Like once you've created this platform or you've created the the filters or the technology, sort of like whole new worlds it can create, but that help us 
sort of with what we're doing in the real world, I guess. But yeah, I mean, these immersive technologies are really augmenting our existing yeah. um, our existing sensors um, and the way that machine learning is doing a lot of it. I mean, you, a lot of people might have used on their phone um, Google Lens, like you hold up your camera and you can identify what's, you know, what that plant is or where somebody bought a bag from or something. But um, if you imagine that technology on your face, you know, that you can look around and you don't have to, like, I can look over to the port and I can just zoom in you know, into what is over there with just using my, you know, my glasses or my eyesight. Um, so it like, yeah, I'd be keen to hear when Justin thinks about, you know, the, the convergence of that type of technology. Mm. Sure. Go for it. Yeah. I think that's a, a, that's a fantastic way to talk about the confluence of those two things, right? If we think about, um, the technologies for AR and VR is about augmenting our senses then underlying that is how, how we use uh, data and computing to give us more information about that or make predictions or, or understand the inputs from those, those senses, whether they're augmented or not. And so facial recognition is one of those things. Uh, you talked about Google Lens. Un underlying any of those technologies is the ability to do pattern recognition very, very quickly on the basis of training on, the, on past data, right? So I, I thought one of the, the great applications of uh, machine learning to, to my practical life was helping me find people in my in my photos. I love looking at photos of the past, but it, it's I'm hopeless at organizing them. And previously, I would have had to put them all into different folders and then go sort through them to find something. And now I can just type somebody's name and it and it shows me all of the photos of that person. And that is uh, absolutely made possible by machine learning, which is pattern recognition trained on the basis of um, uh, a couple of images increasingly maybe more and more but we you know we tell the algorithm this is my brother kevin and uh it goes and finds all the pictures of kevin similarly i think what we're going to see is um uh, applications of augmented reality for example where the input streams from the devices are giving us data and the algorithms are helping us make decisions in real time so show me all of the bolts that need to be tightened is one way that that might work um yeah show me that we probably are familiar with google maps show me the directions for how to get to some place in real time but overlay them over my environment so they don't have to look at my phone when i'm stepping across the street so i think it's those things coming together is really powerful for us making uh good decisions in in our real world cool I I see that space too um, really valuable when we're talking about rolling our education to um, a lot of people in, in the world, so third world countries even. Um, that sort of application of that technology when you can educate people in a virtual way where everybody's equal and you can talk to the person next to you and you can have a whole group mm. or a whole community in there learning together, I think is going to make, make a whole big difference to a whole lot of people. And they'll be obviously be able to be banked as well. We're talking about, you know, how the human, a lot of people in the world at the moment are unbanked. They have no documentation. They can't own property. They can't right. lend money. Um, so blockchain allows all that to happen as well. So I think that together is going to be a massive thing for, for everybody. Education is key, I think, in every, every way, sense and form. I'm getting a, I'm getting a, a sense from just reflecting what I've heard so far this morning that um, in a way you could engage with these technologies think or AI and XR and blockchain it all seems very like mechanical or digital and distant and um, challenging but what I'm hearing here is actually there's it's really a lot about increasing trust um, things uh, reducing risk and increasing safety um, reducing or breaking down like monopolies that are um, not socially beneficial or actually decreasing the distance um, you know between humans to be able to connect and learn from each other which makes it feel like a much like warmer friendlier more human future in a way than than how it could be sort of um, um, yeah articulated in in sort of the media more broadly so I just want to thank you all for like making all of these technologies a little bit more human and perhaps just before we flip out to questions from the audience 
just invite you to share yeah a few more reflections on um, how you see this playing out in the future and perhaps as Justin's example like ways in which this may be creeping into our everyday experience as as citizens or consumers or business owners so yeah invite you to share a little bit about that if you don't mind um. Well, I wanted to touch on the on the metaverse because I think there is two versions of that metaverse and one doesn't get me excited about it at all, which is like Netflix on steroids where I'm just lost for hours uh, and where the big corporates still own all of my data. And there is a version of metaverse that's integrated with blockchain, which is could be also referred to as Web3, which makes me really excited because then that means I can own physical assets in real life and then I can also own digital assets in the metaverse. And if I'm spending a lot of time in metaverse, like earning cash, for example, making friends, and then I no longer like that metaverse provider, for example, Facebook, I can actually leave that environment while still maintaining everything that I have created or earned. For example, uh, you know, digital buildings that I have invested and built or friends that I've made and I actually own my assets, my digital assets, and I also own my own data and I can set the terms of use of my assets and data myself as opposed to if you think about signing up to any service you use right now like Spotify, Zoom, uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, you accept their terms and conditions. They don't give. They don't tell you, oh, please upload your terms and conditions as well, accept them. So the blockchain actually flips that on its head as well, and that's probably something we haven't mm. touched on. So that, that's the first thing. And then the second thing, I think I haven't done a great job of explaining about why tokenizing carbon credits is so important. And it's because what, what do corporates right now use carbon credits for? They use it to make claims about their own greenness or sustainability, and they can say, you know, we're actually a you know, completely green company that attracts um, consumers. So that could be you know, completely bogus for all we know. Mm -hmm. And it's because um, that carbon credit exists in the metaverse already. It's digitized. There is no paper that says that's a carbon credit from that solar farm or from that you know, technology that was used to offset carbon. And because it exists in the digital metaverse space already, it actually needs to be tracked through a decentralized uh, database, uh, reducing the risk of that being a fraudulent credit. So we need to be, um, we need we need to trust the governments and the corporates when they tell us that they're doing something good for the environment, and blockchain helps to achieve that. Awesome, um, Natalie. Do you have any yeah, closing sort of comments before we flip out to Q and A? Yeah, just that I totally agree on the uh, more positive Web3 version of the metaverse. Um, I think one of the challenges is the the interoperability, which we already see with software and operating systems. Um, but I think it's um, important that everyone, like the general public, so thank you for coming on today and listening to this chat and, and listening online as well, because the more people that um, attempt to understand these technologies and have this um, conversation, whether you're working in government or for corporate or private or public enterprise, um, these are the conversations that we need to have. I mean, we haven't even touched on security mm. <laughs> um, and, and privacy and things like that, but um, that's why I'm really excited about the convergence of these technologies and having these kinds of discussions. There are also, um, perhaps I just recommend like if people are, are listening in um, or here or watching, that there are, there are ways to play with this as well, which I think is a, for, in my experience, it's been a really good way to sort of feel into what that might mean for my business or the future is to find, yeah, to find a game or to find some very cheap NFTs <laughs> um, or very small amount of cryptocurrency or play around with chat GP3, GP3 or um, DALI. Like there are ways to sort of play with this and make a bit of time to be curious and get creative rather than, yeah, think it's a, a sort of big thing to be feared. Uh, so I'd like to flip out um, to our, our local audience, um, the people here with us in the real universe, not the metaverse, and uh, see if any of you have um, questions for our esteemed panel. Like we really do have some amazing experts here, as I'm sure you have benefited from hearing what they've said so far. Any questions? Yes. Yeah, it's not working. It's working? 
so Mini, I was really curious of really interesting uh, in your uh, talk of fractionalization, tokenization of, of real estate. And one of the things you mentioned was that uh, it would be, there would be no stamp duty involved in these type of transactions. But um, if you would scale it up, that would never happen because the government would never allow that. The state government would never allow to let go of one of their main income, stream, income streams. Can you comment on that? So yes, I mean, it's always interesting because we, we do have to work within the regulatory framework that we currently have. Um, and this space will evolve and change as things go forward. But stamp duty is applicable when you transfer an asset. So the hard asset or the title changes. With tokenization of real estate at the moment, we don't, to we don't change the title at all. The original owner is the original owner. What we're doing is we're tokenizing the economic rights on the property. So basically we're allowing somebody to purchase a, a token that gives them the opportunity to earn some income from that property. So it's, that's how we are at the moment um, playing the space. Regulations are good. We, well, I don't think any of us are saying that regulations are bad. We don't want the space to get very muddy, which it, we've had a few hiccups this year. Um, but we, we still want to go forward. So what we tend to do in this space, my experience, is that we, we forge on and we do what we can do within the regulatory framework that we have. Um, we're always moving towards what the utopian view would be, um, but at this stage we, we keep within that that group, yeah. Hi, I'm Chrissy Morse. Thank you so much. I could listen to you all for absolute hours. Uh, my question is for Justin. Justin, you know so much about the digital future and machine learning, and I am very interested in leadership. And I'd like to know what human qualities a, commu a computer can't learn, because our human qualities are going to be so important and our advantage against machine learning in the future. So can you tell me what a computer can't learn and what human qualities you think will be most important? Thanks. Um, the, I suppose the short and honest version is I have no idea. I think every time that we have tried to imagine what separates us from other mm. animals or from computers, we've gotten it wrong. Uh, and we've often underestimated our own ability to build systems that exceed our own capabilities at doing things. Um, but I think that there is uh, one thing which we need to focus on, and we're absolutely in a moment of that, and that is uh, it is uniquely our human right an ability to decide what to do with these tools. So it is about intention, and each of the technologies that we're talking about can be put to any use. And they will be put to uses that we're not happy with as well as uses that we can all be excited about. Uh, but it's for us to figure out what we do with them. Right? They're, they're tools like any other. Do we want to use um, facial recognition for helping us find photos of our family? Do we want to use it for targeting missiles? all of those technologies are agnostic to their application until we choose. And so I think that's one thing that is uh, squarely within the realm of human choice and our responsibilities for thinking about technology. Thank you for the question. My, my questions to Anya. Um, as a digital dinosaur, could you explain what staking is, please? Well, you're clearly not a dinosaur. You know the term. <laughs> so there is um, that term gets used to describe two very different things. Um, it's traditionally been used to describe proof of stake blockchains. So we've transitioned from proof of work blockchains that relied on energy consumption to solve a complex math puzzle to create consensus between the nodes to the proof of stake blockchains where uh, the punishment for not for uh, for not being an honest node is to have your stake in that network taken away. So that's the kind of traditional description of that. So Powerledger, we have launched a, um, a stake blockchain 
in June last year. Uh, and part of that is the process of not just the nodes participating in the consensus, but also individuals with the crypto, with power tokens, uh, contributing to that security of that distributed database. So in that sense of the wor word, I think it's a, a, a critical feature that enables the security of decentralized databases. Then there is that term has been co-opted by other players in the blockchain crypto space where they might create a smart contract that just prints money, kind of like a Ponzi scheme, and they advertise that as staking. Anytime you see anything like, you know, pay $100 worth of crypto, get like a 1000% APY, that's most likely what's going on there. So they're not securing any database that contains any valuable data. It's basically a programmer coded for, um, in, for you to receive those returns. And as long as, you know, everyone's piling into that kind of happy train, everyone benefits, but eventually those things end up being bubbles and they burst and we've seen that happen. So I think if you're considering staking in any particular uh, project, you really need to understand which w one of those two it is. <laughs> Hi, Brett Treasure. My question's for Minnie, a subject that almost never gets talked about when people discuss the future of blockchain is governance. Can you say something about that and, and in particular the, the strength of different coins and how we're going to manage governance going forwards? By governance, you mean? Governance. Governance of the different blockchains, okay. Uh, the whole principle of, of um, where we're heading is um, decentralized. So it's consensus-based. So when the, the real distinction, I think, that we probably all really need to get clear in our head is what is centralised and what is decentralised. I hope this is pointing to your question. So uh, a centralised is what we're all used to, which is a governance in terms of there's one body or one company that is controlling our data or our assets or whatever it is that we've got going, our, our businesses. Um, whereas a decentralised platform is a whole different thing. So we have something called DAOs, which is a decentralized autonomous organizations that we can run over the top of, of our entities as well in this space. Um, it's, I, but I think fundamentally we're decentralized consensus based networks. So it's the whole that, that control, not, not one governance, if that makes sense. Anybody got any more? Um, well, I think, um, Gov like the best kind of governance is that people who have a um, something to lose in that particular network or project are the ones that are making decisions about that network or project. And that's what the blockchain technology enables you to do. So if I want to have a, a, a say in how, for example, an Ethereum blockchain or a Solana blockchain are developing, the best way for me to do that is to own their tokens. Mm. And then I make uh, my decisions with those tokens. I can I can stake them. I can purchase something with them. I can vote on proposals, for example, from some of the blockchain teams. And and that's the best way of doing it because if um, we made the bad decision, well, the value of the token depreciates. So I'm you know financially penalized for that bad decision. And and that's uh, a most common governance model in the blockchain space. Thank you. Um, I'm Carla Freeman Supports. Um, good morning. A topic that everyone is talking about, and as universities um, running, not sure what to do, and schools banning is, of course, ChatGPT. So, <laughs> following up on Justin's comment, using artificial intelligence to elevate us, that's uh, something that really resonated with me. I started using ChatGPT, immediately became my virtual assistant. I think it has already increased my productivity at least by five hours a week. <laughs> and um, yeah, um, I'd like to, to hear um, your, your thoughts um, on, you know, where, where this is going and uh, 
some some people are really afraid they're gonna lose their jobs do you think this is really gonna happen or or following up on, on your comment which um will actually um improve ourselves you know and um um yeah so that that's a little bit my question <laughs> I'm really excited about ChatGPT. I started using it a lot and my productivity went up straight away. So I have a similar experience. I was just amazed. For example, right now I'm writing a, a, a business plan for a tokenized loyalty program. And I found that the speed at which I'm writing it is like, I've never done anything that fast. And it's because it's able to remove some of my subjectivity about certain topics. Like, does the energy industry need a loyalty program? Does the energy industry need a loyalty program? <laughs> like, what are the examples of some of the good loyalty programs? Here we go. Like, what are the drawbacks? What do I need to consider? Like, but obviously, you know, the one thing that it can't do is like, I wrote that report pretty much using ChatGPT. And then I, well, what is, is it worth doing or not? You know, what is what is the recommendation here? How could such a business model look like? Like, can't answer those questions. So that's really coming from you and your own um, intuition and insight into an industry. Uh, that is really special, right? If you're doing something that everyone's done before where the chat GPT got trained on, then you can pull the data. If you invent in a completely new business model, it can't do that. It doesn't have the data set to, to draw from. Um, but But I think it's absolutely... Like if everyone should try it and everyone should use it. <laughs> to answer your question directly, yes, people will lose their jobs. Uh, I think that's something to be embraced. I think we have to navigate that change responsibly. But if you think about Anya's illustration of how it's affected her work, the jobs that are likely to be lost there are researcher jobs. Typically, if you were going to write a report like that, you would have had a junior member of staff do some research on what are the current ways that we're doing this particular thing? And you use ChatGPT to do that. I think that um, this is not a new thing, right? Um, most people around most of the world had been engaged in backbreaking labor and farming until just recently, practically. Uh, so that, that change in how we spend our time productively is to be embraced but also to be managed well. We've, we've really got to think about some of these jobs that are no longer going to exist. What's harder to think about is the upside. What will it enable us to do? What expressions of our humanity will we be able to do better as a result of not doing some of that other stuff? Um, but in the short term, it's not going to mean fewer jobs on the whole. So earlier this week, I had a look and there are 7,200 open jobs posted on LinkedIn for data scientists in Australia alone. And there are some, uh, I think 285,000 in the US. So we need more people uh, figuring out how to put this technology to use, not fewer. We need fewer people doing some other things, perhaps like research assistance, something like that. Uh, and that, that change has been the, the, the history of humanity elevating itself and doing better. And so, Figuring out how we continue to, to do that and to do that in ways that we that we like is something that everybody can contribute to and should be excited about, I think. Yeah, and I think the other end of the spectrum as well is not just, you know, well, we all lose our jobs, but I have a lot of parents coming up to me and saying, what should my kids be studying, you know, or how do we prepare them for the workforce? Um, and what I always say is that, um, you know, my job didn't exist, you know, 10 years ago. So th there was no way that I could have studied at a high school or university. So I always say that um, having a love of learning and an, and an openness and a flexibility um, to be able to change what you're studying. So, um, you know, who knows if university degrees will continue to be three years because a lot of the stuff that you learn at the beginning could potentially be irrelevant by the time you finish. But if you've got a love of learning and you know how to access information and how to find it, a bit like how you were saying, Anya, about you have to know what questions to ask 
to be able to so how do we train that into um you know students of today how do we train them to understand more the context of things um and looking really long term into the future you know um same as justin the, the, asking those questions about what is work what is the nature of work what are we doing it for you know people are already questioning you know should we move from a five-day work week to four or three-day work week you know are we paying people for hours or productivity um and you know are you what, what, what is the function of work, you know, and there are people that are overemployed and doing too much. And there are people that are underemployed that would like to work more. So I think there's a lot of um, flux at the moment, but with this emerging technologies, there's a lot of opportunities as well. And to, to add to that, um, one of the major companies, you know, all the major companies in the world in this space are actually starting to roll out training programs. Cisco just announced they're doing, I think, 97 million intake of people globally um, and they're saying that yes the loss of jobs might be say 80 million but the net effect of that is everybody's positioning themselves to actually upskill and train people into what the new jobs will be like um, and, I, and that's across the board so I think um, schools will are also starting to look at that as well so awesome. Well, um, on the topic of love of learning, I hope everyone has loved what you've learned today. Um, thank you again to Fremantle Chamber for hosting us, um, to the City of Fremantle for continuing to support these monthly podcasts, for our audience here, uh, for those um, wherever you are virtually tuning in um, now or in the future listening to this podcast, and uh, especially big thanks to um, all of our guests. So have a great morning.